The scripture reading for today comes from Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 15. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people, Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against his holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. You can be seated. And good morning again, and welcome to New Life Fremont. My name is Kevin, if I haven't had a chance to meet any of you yet. We are continuing our sermon series through the book of Acts called The World Turned Upside Down. Wherever the apostles or the early church go, they turn things upside down. They reject worldly kingdoms for Jesus' kingdom, a kingdom that doesn't grow through domination, but through gracious invitation. Uh, It doesn't grow through strength, but it grows through weakness, not through destruction, but through restoration and mercy. And in our passage today, we see how the early church and the apostles respond to a problem that arises in their community. It's a a very practical problem, Uh, but it also touches on issues of justice and mercy, issues that are at the very heart of God, and therefore at the very heart of the Christian life, of our life. So we're going to look more closely at Acts chapter 6 and this problem that arises for the early church. And as we do, we will have three points, neglecting, appointing, and unifying. And so let's begin with our first point, neglecting. I have not been to the dentist since the summer of 2019. I have been neglecting my oral hygiene by not getting twice a year cleanings for almost three years now. And, you know, initially the delay uh, was because of the pandemic. You know, we had just moved to California and didn't have a dentist yet. And before I could find one, the pandemic started and things like going to the dentist were put on hold. 
And then I just never took it off of hold. And here we are. I haven't been to the dentist in three years. And of course, the longer you avoid going to the dentist, the more difficult it is to find the motivation to go. Uh, Because I know that the fact that I haven't been in so long likely means that my next cleaning is going to be particularly painful. It's much more likely that I will have a cavity because that's exactly what happened the last time I didn't go to the dentist for three years during seminary. All sorts of problems arise when you neglect anything, when you neglect what you should be giving care and attention for. In our passage, we read right away about a problem of neglect that arises for the early church. Verse 1 says, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. The Hellenists' widows were being neglected. Now, who exactly are we talking about here? Who are the Hellenists? Well, at this point in the church's short history, it was the church was pretty much made up of Jews. You know, we're still in Jerusalem at this point, and most Jews spoke Aramaic primarily. But there was a a smaller group of Jews who spoke Greek primarily, not Aramaic. And those Greek-speaking Jews were referred to as the Hellenists. And it's these Hellenists who have a complaint in our passage. They say that while the Aramaic-speaking widows, the Hebrew widows, they've been receiving their daily distribution The Hellenist widows have not. They've been neglected. Now, as daily distribution is stuff like food, daily distributing food to the widows, but also possibly things like clothing, maybe even money, just basic needs that the widows needed to survive. The church was daily distributing these things to widows and others as any had need. That's what we've read before in Acts. But here we find out that not all of the widows were receiving it. The Hellenist widows were being neglected. And there's two problems here. First, God cares tremendously about widows, and he wants his people to take care of them. And you can trace this all the way back to the Pentateuch in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 24:19. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field— You shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. Essentially, if you leave a bundle from your harvest in the field, don't go back and get it so that a sojourner, an orphan, or a widow can have it for free. That's how they can get some of their food. Or Deuteronomy 27, 19, Cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due to the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. And all the people shall say, Amen. New Testament picks this up also. Um, Our passage from the reading of the law of God earlier, James 1.27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. And as you've likely noticed, these passages mention people beyond just widows. They also mention sojourners and orphans. People, uh, sojourners, people who are, you know, not from where they currently reside, orphans, those who have no parents who can take care of them, and widows, women who have no spouse or children to take care of them. These three people are often, these three groups of people are often 
uh, all mentioned together in Scripture. And so why does God care so much about these types of people? Why does God care so much about sojourners, orphans, and widows? Well, it's because they're the easiest to neglect. They often have no one to advocate for them. They lack power. They lack resources. And throughout history, they have been the people most likely to be exploited. And God looks at them. God looks at sojourners, orphans, and widows. And he says, these types of people I identify with. God identifies so closely with the sojourner, the orphan, the widow, that if his people don't care for them, then God says he's breaking their covenant with him. That's how much he identifies with them. Amazing, right? If you don't take care of them, you're breaking your covenant with me. That's what the curse from that Deuteronomy verse was about. God says, if you mistreat the sojourner, the orphan, or the widow, you break your covenant with me. And instead of receiving covenant blessing, you're going to receive covenant cursing. Because neglecting sojourners, orphans, and widows is neglecting God. He identifies that closely with them. Jesus actually says something very similar. Matthew 25, 41 through 46. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then Jesus will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. It doesn't get any more clear than that, just how closely God identifies himself with those who are in need. And so all to say, the first problem here in Acts 6 is that the widows are being neglected, which is a huge problem in God's eyes because he identifies very closely with widows or anyone who's in need. But the second problem The second problem just makes things worse because not all the widows are being neglected. Only the Hellenist widows are being neglected, which means on top of the already serious problem of neglecting widows, there's some sort of bias or discrimination at play here. And the text doesn't make it, you know, perfectly clear if this is an overt bias, you know, purposely leaving out the Hellenist widows, or if it's unintentional, just accidentally forgetting them, or some miscommunication happening, and they just didn't realize that they weren't receiving the daily distribution. But either way, it's an even more serious problem that the neglect is essentially discriminatory. You know, if you're the right kind of widow, you're getting the daily distribution. But if you're a different kind of widow, if you're the other kind of widow, we're not really ensuring that you're getting your daily distribution. And, uh, you know, another bit of context in all this, it's probably also the case that the Hellenist widows are also sojourners. You know, they speak Greek because they're probably not originally from Jerusalem. Uh, They probably traveled there from some other Greek-speaking place. And so now there's two reasons that God closely identifies with these women. They're sojourners and they're widows. And the church has been failing to care for them properly. They've been neglecting the Hellenist widows. Now, that's first century Jerusalem. But what about for us today? Now, let's think about 21st century Bay Area, who are our sojourners and widows and orphans? 
Well, for starters, sojourners, widows, and orphans. There's a standing command from God for his people to care for them. And so we must always have our eyes open to look for sojourners, widows, and orphans among us in our community to care for. That, that'll never change. But there are also principles underlying why God cares for sojourners, widows, and orphans that we can use to help us identify who else God wants us to care for. You know, who is easily taken advantage of? Who doesn't have any power or resources? Who doesn't have someone to advocate for them? You know, those who maybe are struggling to make ends meet, those who don't speak English, those who are homeless, those who are being priced out of living in the Bay Area, those from minority populations, those with compromised immune systems, whatever. Who, who else? Who is getting neglected in our context? You have eyes to see who is being neglected. God does. Maybe you feel like, in a lot of ways, you and your needs have been neglected. God identifies with you. God sees you. God sees all who are neglected, and he wants his people to see them too. Or what about for you individually? You know, we all have different experiences and stories. We come from diverse upbringings and cultures and backgrounds. Whose needs, whose interests do you, do you see quickly? And whose needs and whose interests are you slow to see, maybe even blind to see? You know, who might you unintentionally forget about and neglect? Who do you fail to consider? Or let me take this maybe in a slightly unexpected direction. If you're on the pastor search committee, as you meet and work and search for a pastor, are there any interests or needs from the congregation that aren't represented among the committee's members? Are there any interests and needs that might get neglected if you don't intentionally seek them out and consider them? Are there minority groups in our congregation but not represented on the committee that you need to especially consider? Not saying you're not doing any of those things. I haven't been to your meetings, but I am saying that those are the types of questions you need to be asking yourselves. We all need to be asking ourselves. We need to be self-aware, intentionally devoting time and energy, looking, for the in- looking out for the interests and needs of people who are different than us, who we might not naturally see or consider, but are present within our community. God cares about the interests and needs of the weak, the poor, the powerless, the unrepresented, the unseen, the unheard, the sojourner, the orphan, the widow, any minority. And so it was a serious problem for the early church that the widows from the minority group, from the Hellenists, were not receiving their daily distribution. So what did the church do? That takes us to our second point, appointing. You know, whenever a new administration enters the White House, there are are way too many areas of government for the president to govern just by himself. And so what does he do? 
he appoints people to oversee the various departments. You know, he appoints a secretary of state, a secretary of the treasury, of defense, of transportation, the attorney general, the UN ambassador, and so on. He appoints people to these tasks, to these roles. And they're people that he trusts to oversee their respective departments in a way that is consistent with what the White House wants, what the president wants. But at the same time, the president and the White House aren't doing the work in those different areas. They're leaving the work to the people who have been appointed to do it. Well, in our passage, when the apostles hear that the Hellenist widows have not been receiving their daily distribution, they make sure that the problem is addressed by having the church appoint people to take care of them. In verses 2 through 4, it says, The twelve summoned the full number of disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayers and to the ministry of the word. The apostles agree that This is a problem that the Hellenist widows aren't receiving their daily distribution. And and even though they don't have the time or the capacity to be the ones directly doing the work that goes into the daily distribution, they say that it does need to be done within their community. They even go so far as to call it a duty. Verse 3 again, Pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. Again, really just echoing the first point, it's a duty Caring for widows is a duty. It's not optional. It's not like some churches are called to it and others aren't. All Christian communities are called to caring for any widows among them. It's a duty. So the apostles instruct the community to pick seven men to make sure that the widows are taken care of. Appoint, you know, seven men to that duty. The problem was neglect, and a solution was appoint several men to the duty of making sure that those in need among them were not neglected anymore but taken care of. And a lot of people have looked at this story as possibly the church's first deacons. And although that title or office isn't formally named here, seven men are appointed by the church to the duty of mercy ministry. And the apostles pray and lay hands on them. And so clearly this is kind of setting the pattern for the future formal election and appointing of deacons, uh, those who are in charge of ministries of mercy in the church. And so What needs to be true of those appointed for this duty? Well, a few things. Uh, First, they're to be from among them. You know, they aren't outsourcing. They aren't hiring a mercy ministry contractor or a mercy ministry consultant. They pick seven men from among them. Why is it important that they're from among them? Well, those best positioned to understand the needs within the community are those who are right there in the midst of that community. And did you notice anything interesting about the men that they select? They're listed in verse 5. Did you notice anything interesting about them? Stephen, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicholas. Did you notice anything interesting about those names? It's okay if not. They're all Greek names. These are Hellenist men. The Hellenist widows were the group that were being neglected and overlooked. And so the community thought, which was not predominantly Hellenist, but the community thought it would be best to elect all Hellenist men to the duty. And look, I know that representation can kind of get performative in today's day and age. And 
Uh, but it really is true that the people best situated to understand the ins and outs and nuance for caring for a specific people group are people from that same group. And so what's sort of just trendy today has actually been the pattern since the early church in the first century. Hellenist widows are being neglected. Let's put Hellenist men from among us in positions of leadership to ensure that they're taken care of. And of course, not just any Hellenist men. These men do need to be qualified. The apostles say that they need to be of good repute. They need to be highly regarded within their community. Because realistically, they aren't going to be doing all the ministry and all the the mercy work themselves. They're going to be enlisting and mobilizing the rest of the community. And so they need to be highly regarded within the community. They need to have a good reputation to be trusted by the community. They also need to be full of the Spirit. They need to be spiritually mature. They should be filled with the Spirit. And related to being filled with the Spirit, they also need to be full of wisdom. Wisdom comes from the Spirit, so these go hand in hand. And being full of the Spirit and full of wisdom is mentioned here because often the work of the diaconate, often the work of mercy ministry is complicated. It's messy. You're often entering into situations that clearly have not gone how they were supposed to go. And, you know, all mercy ministry consists of sinners advocating for sinners to other sinners. And so you can imagine how important wisdom is to carrying out ministries of mercy. So they should be full of the spirit and wisdom. And, you know, more qualifications are explicitly laid out for the office of deacon in 1 Timothy 3. Uh, It says there that they ought to be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. They should be one-woman men who manage their children and their households well. Our uh, denomination's book of church order says this about deacons. The office is one of sympathy and service after the example of the Lord Jesus. It is the duty of the deacons to minister to those who are in need, to the sick, to the friendless, and to any who may be in distress. It is their duty also to develop the grace of liberality among the members of the church. You know, that, that clause mentioning the friendless has always stuck out to me. It's easy to miss, but often one of the reasons why someone is in need of food or shelter or clothes or money or whatever is also because that person is in need of friends. You know, an often overlooked ministry of mercy, a ministry of the deacons, is befriending those who have few or maybe no friends and equipping the congregation to do so too. And I also like the phrase about developing the grace of liberality in the members of the church. I I saw this on display when I attended a meeting of the diaconate at my church during seminary. They would receive requests from individuals connected to the church and make decisions about how to respond to those need requests. And at the meeting I was at, I saw the grace of liberality displayed. You know, they would say, okay, so-and-so is asking if the church can pay for five sessions with a licensed counselor. How about we pay for 10? So-and-so is asking if the church can pay for half of their rent next month. How about we just pay for the whole month? Right? That's the grace of liberality. Let's give freely. Let's give even more than they're asking for. Grace of liberality. You know, the early church appointed seven men to the duty of caring for the Hellenist widows, to the duty of mercy ministry. Now, obviously, 
New Life doesn't have deacons yet, but we still have the same duty to the ministry of mercy as the early church. And for us, you know, that's mostly looked like the pastor is asking someone from among you, the congregation, to lead our mercy ministry efforts. You know, right now the person is Tina. And I'm sure you remember all the times that you've been mobilized to meet the needs in our community. I'm sure sometimes you've realized that by the time you checked out the list of needs, they've all been met already because we tend to have a pretty good response time as a church. There's also been times when mercy ministry is happening behind the scenes and more directly with people uh, in, in situations where we don't necessarily broadcast the specifics for the privacy of those involved. And so that's what mercy ministry has often looked like in our church. And I want to cast some vision for what the future of mercy ministry could look like for new life. You know, are any of you possibly called to the diaconate? You know, should, should we elect any of you to be deacons one day? You know, maybe the idea of being an elder and doing more to guard the doctrine, the peace, and the purity of the church doesn't feel like quite your gifting, but leading in service or leading in sympathy is right up your alley. Maybe you're called to the diaconate. Or if not you, who? Who among you do you find yourself thinking, man, he would make a great deacon or she is gifted in the ministry of mercy? You know, if you think those things about anyone, tell them. Give them an encouraging word, you know. Nobody here is probably going to be the first one to say, I think I'm called to do that. And so do them a favor. Point out what you see in them first. And then practically, you know, if you sense a possibility of a call to the diaconate or serving and mercy ministry in general, you know, let me know. Or maybe even most efficient is just connect directly with Tina and maybe a little mercy ministry committee can start to grow and form and really equip our church for the work of mercy ministry. That could be maybe a training ground for a future diaconate. In the early church appointed people to the duty of carrying out the ministries of mercy. Who might we appoint? Now, whenever the topic of ministries of mercy comes up, there can often come with it a kind of conversation based on a false dichotomy. You know, in our passage, the apostles say, we can't give up the ministry of the word to take up uh, the ministry of mercy. You know, we can't give up our ministry to take care of these widows directly, so let's have others do it. Or even, you know, in church government structure, you have elders who guard the doctrine, the peace, and the purity of the church, and you have deacons who devote themselves to service and sympathy. And there's been endless debate about whether we should prioritize evangelism and discipleship or social justice and mercy. And these are all false dichotomies. None of them are either or. They're all both and. And that takes us to our final point, unifying. You know, over the past 500 years, there has been a lot that's been discovered about the nature of light. And, uh, you know, a lot of this goes over my head. Uh, but early on, a lot of scientists did work to show that light is made up of particles. Or, you know, to oversimplify, light behaves like particles, uh, like particles of matter behave. You know, like throwing a ball at a wall, light uh, goes in one direction from its source and isn't able to go through a wall like a ball. Uh, it stops when it hits the wall. It doesn't naturally bend around it like sound might. And so this has been called the particle theory of light. Light operates like particles of matter operate. But then in following centuries, more work was done by scientists to show that light is actually made up of waves. 
just like sound is made up of waves. Light is made up with uh, made up of waves, and so that's how lights can be different colors. That's how there can be light that we can't see because it's infrared or ultraviolet. You know, it has wavelengths that are too small or too large for our eyes to see. And this has been called the wave theory of light. Light often operates in ways that are consistent with waves. And eventually the scientific conception of light came to a point that sees it as both particle in some sense and wave in some sense. Although these are mostly metaphors to just help us understand light in various contexts. In reality, light is unlike anything else. It's a unified phenomenon that can't be simply broken down into either particle or wave. Light is its own unified whole. In a similar way, Christianity cannot be easily broken down into parts like evangelism and social justice or discipleship and mercy. You know, these may be helpful categories for us to talk about Christianity in a particular context, but the reality is that these are false dichotomies. Christianity is a unified phenomenon that can't be simply broken down into parts. It's a unified whole. In in our passage, after the seven men are appointed and prayed for and hands are laid on them, in verse 7, it says that the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem So greatly, in fact, that even some priests came to faith. Word of God spread. The number of disciples of Jesus multiplied. Even priests were coming to faith. And so look, the church took care of all their widows. They appointed the seven men to the duty of mercy ministry. And the text seems to imply that this went hand in hand with the ministry of the word spreading as well. You know, mercy and word went together care for widows and church growth go together. Or consider two of the seven men who were appointed in verse 5. Stephen and Philip. Do you guys know what Stephen and Philip are best known for in Acts? I'll start with Stephen. In uh, verses 8 through 15 of our passage, it says that he was full of grace and power. He did wonders and signs. People from Uh, The synagogue were debating him, and I love how verse 10 puts this. They could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen was speaking. It was like, his wisdom, it's too strong. We can't withstand it. And so what do they do? They seize him. They bring him before the council. They set up false witnesses, and it eventually leads to him being stoned to death in the next chapter. But not before he gives what is essentially a sermon— tracing through redemptive history. He goes through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Aaron, Joshua, David, Solomon. He quotes Deuteronomy. He quotes Amos. He quotes Isaiah. You know, I'm not sure there's any way to describe that, but ministry of the word. And so is Stephen more like a deacon or is he more like an elder? Is he devoted more to mercy ministry or is he devoted more to the ministry of the word? It's both. His mercy work and his proclamation work aren't separated. They're unified. Same goes for Philip. What is Philip most famous for in Acts? The conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8. Philip is on the road from Jerusalem to Gaza, and he comes across an Ethiopian man who serves in the court of the queen of Ethiopia. And the Ethiopian man is reading from the book of Isaiah. And uh, Philip asks him, do you understand what you're reading? And the man says, how can I unless someone guides me? And so what does Philip do? 
He guides him in his reading of the Bible. He explains the good news about Jesus, and the Ethiopian converts right there and then. And so again, is Philip more like a deacon, or is he more like a pastor? Is he devoted more to mercy ministry or ministry of the word? Both. His care for the widows and his evangelism aren't separated, they're united. And so my point is this. While there may be specific roles or titles or offices or times or contexts or gifts that individuals are called to that lean lean more one way or the other, more toward doctrine and teaching and evangelism or more toward service and sympathy and mercy, at the end of the day, all Christians are called to both. Christianity is a unified whole. These aren't meant to be separated. They're meant to be unified. You shouldn't preach or evangelize or teach as an excuse not to serve and do mercy. You shouldn't sympathize and care for the needy as an excuse not to proclaim the gospel or evangelize. They are each part of a whole, two sides of the same coin. You need both. We need both. The church needs all of it. The church is called to all of it. It's unified. And so what about for you? You Do you have any inclinations toward one side or the other of the false dichotomy? Do you find yourself eager and excited to talk theology, to study the Bible, maybe even to correct or teach others? But you're a bit uncomfortable when someone near you is in need. You find yourself viewing the ministry of the word side of things as the only thing that matters. That same word says that those who don't care for the least of these should not be so sure they know the true Jesus. Or on the other hand, do you find yourself eager and excited to take opportunities to serve? Maybe behind the scenes work at church or service project opportunities in the community, feed the homeless, stand against injustice, give to the poor. You find yourself eager to do those things, but uncomfortable sharing the gospel message with non-believers or a little embarrassed about some of the exclusive truth claims of Christianity. You know, the Bible is clear. Good works will not justify anyone. Only facing the reality of your sin and everyone's sin, sins that Jesus graciously and mercifully died for, for those who by faith receive him and believe in his name. Christianity is a unified whole ministry of mercy, ministry of word. There's no separating them, only unifying them. And the best picture of this, of course, is Jesus. What does John 1 say about Jesus? It says that he is the word of God incarnate. He is the word of God in the flesh. He is orthodoxy and orthopraxy, what you're supposed to believe and what you're supposed to do embodied. You know, Jesus preached of the kingdom of God and repentance for the forgiveness of sins, and he healed the lame, the blind, the deaf, and the mute. He raised up disciples, and he raised Lazarus from the dead. He taught in the temple, and he invited widows and children and prostitutes and doubters to come to him, to touch him. Because mercy is the gospel message Jesus proclaims. The gospel is good news to the poor, the captive, the brokenhearted. That's why he emphasizes care for the least of these. Because you were the least of these. That's why God emphasizes sojourners and orphans and widows. Because you were sojourners, orphans, and widows. Do you get how you were those things? 
You were a sojourner, enslaved by sin, just like the Israelites were sojourners enslaved in Egypt. And just like God set them free and made them a nation so that they were no longer sojourners and aliens, they belonged. Jesus, through his death, has set you free in the same way so that you're no longer a sojourner or alien wandering aimlessly in a foreign land. You're a citizen now. Your homeland is heaven. This fallen world isn't your home, but you are bound for your home, the promised land, where you're a citizen, not a sojourner. You were also an orphan, fatherless, with no hope. But what did God do? He adopted you. He chose you before the creation of the world. He made you a child of God. And now he's your heavenly father. Though your father and your mother may forsake you, the Lord has taken you in. And now you have an inheritance in heaven that can never perish, spoil, or fade. You were an orphan, but now you've been adopted. You were a widow. No one to care for you, no one to provide for you, no one willing to commit themselves to you until God made a covenant with you and committed himself to you. Committed to die in your place, to die in the whole church's place so that the church would be cleansed and purified and adored like a wedding bride for the day when she marries her bridegroom, Jesus. A marriage and a covenant commitment that nothing can touch that will endure for all eternity. You were a widow and Jesus made you his bride. Mercy is the gospel. Jesus has poured out his mercy on you. How can you not help but overflow with mercy too? Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we praise you and thank you for your mercy toward us. You've taken us from sojourners and turned us into citizens. You've taken us from orphans and turned us into sons and daughters. You've taken us from widows and made, you, made us your bride. Father, we pray that these truths would sink into our hearts, that they would help us grow in grace, grow in mercy. Father, we confess all the ways we fall short of your mercy. In your graciousness, Lord, help us to have eyes to see all those around us who are in need and for ways that we can be merciful toward them. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.